And so you have to be careful when you're, you know, comparing something head to head to a chemical mm-hmm. and antibiotic, things of that nature, because you cannot expect, you know, some of these things that we evaluate to even meet, you know, the same standards as a chemical or an antibiotic. But that doesn't mean that it's not beneficial in some way to the to yeah. the bird. And so it's easy to forget that because when you're looking at data, you can, you know, you want something as effective. Well, that that may not be realistic. Oh, but that yeah. doesn't that doesn't mean it may not be beneficial. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Natural Biologics is using cutting-edge science to dig deeper into the poultry health challenges you face. By gathering scientific evidence, they identify the most effective combinations of natural ingredients that improve animal health. Visit naturalbiologics.com poultry to see the newest research in both turkeys and chickens. Hello and welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Today I'm here with Dr. Danielle Graham. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to chat with you, hear what you have to say about some of the stuff that you're working on within uh, your lab. But first, I want to hear how did you get into the poultry industry? Well, probably like many people, you know, they, they think they want to go to vet school, right? And so um, during my undergrad, I uh, started working with Billy Hargis and his group, and I started doing some research and had a number of projects. Um, and so I fell in love with that. And so instead of vet school, I wanted, you know, wanted to do graduate school. And so uh, that led to doing my master's and then my PhD all here at the University of Arkansas. Um and so I just really, really fell in love with, um, you know, poultry diseases and specifically gut health, which led to my passion, which is parasitology. And so it just kind of all snowballed from, you know, <laughs> becoming interested in one thing and then just kind of dive into it. I love that you have a passion for parasitology because I think most people are just like, ew, that's a gross field. <laughs> like but I, I also think it's really interesting what I for sure would not call myself a parasitologist. (laughs) I'm happy there are people there to tackle those other issues. (laughs) Well, I'm still learning, so, but I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, So how, uh, what was your path then to your current position now? Well, um, so while I was working on my graduate degrees, I was also a technician at the poultry health lab with Billy Harkis's group. Um, And so I got to, I was exposed to, you know, designing 
experiments that whether that be for students or for industry contracts or grant writing things of that nature and so that just kind of solidified what I thought I wanted to do um, and I knew academia was really probably the best place for me but it's highly competitive and so I was realistic and knew that it was a long shot um, my current position was uh, Dr. Uh, Chapman's and um so it was open for six years, and I mean, it was just luck of the draw, I guess, that I applied, <laughs> and they, you know, selected me for the position, but it definitely is a dream job, um, and so that's kind of why I'm here. I think it was just pure luck that <laughs> they didn't hire someone before I, you know, had finished my PhD, so I'm, yeah. I'm very grateful. That that is awesome. Like I'm so happy when people get their dream job. <laughs> it makes your day to day a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did apply to NASA and I got rejected, but it's still nice to have that rejection letter. So, um, but this is my realistic dream job. Yeah. Oh, NASA. That that would be an interesting place to have a job. <laughs> um. So can you can you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on or maybe some of where your passion lies in terms of the different diseases that you have been working on modeling? Yeah, so um, a lot of what we do, you know, with disease research is either utilize or develop challenge models that simulate what could be going on in a commercial setting because we're working in pristine conditions. So we, we have to have some way to, you know, reproduce these diseases. Um, and so you know, probably 50% of what my group has been focusing on is Enterococcus sequorum research and trying to um, replicate exposure to these virulent sequorum strains during the hatching phase specifically, and then um, looking at the development of that septicemia and mortality that's being observed within the first two weeks of life uh, instead of what is traditionally thought of with sequorum, which is, you know, you're getting um, the skeletal phase involvement mm, and things yeah. of that nature. Um, so kinky back, right? So yeah. um, we're focusing more on uh, that early, you know, post-hatch phase. And then um, we work heavily with Histomonas meleagridis and really going back and trying to um, recreate and understand the biology of Histomonas more. Um, I feel like maybe like we have skipped some steps. Uh, we've worked with attenuated vaccines. There are other groups that have done that as well. Um, so highly passive strains of histomonas where we, you know, they've lost some of their virulence and vaccinating with those, but it's not feasible. Um, mm -hmm. So we're trying to find alternative ways to control that disease, right? Because we lost the one tool that we had, which was histostat, but it you know, arsenical-based drugs, um, and then work heavily with thymeria, necrotic enteritis, things of that nature, um, and dabble in ORT and Clostridium septicum. And so, I mean, we're open to whatever the industry needs, <laughs> yeah. but definitely our, our primary focus, you know, is heavily on the histomonas, imeria, and then intercoccus sequorum side of things. Yeah. So what have been the hardest parts of those models to develop? Is it just that science is missing or is it recreating the right conditions, you know, to make it look like something actually that would happen in the field? I think, you know, recreating the right conditions and then picking, you know, 
it's everything's going to be skewed right because we're trying to develop this it's not an artificial model but it is right so um using strains that may be too harsh and mm -hmm. so when you're trying to evaluate you know some of these natural based methods to potentially mitigate the disease it's just you know nothing is going to ever be able to control that um yeah and you know the 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 type of model that we use so we have either direct challenge which is going to be quite more harsh or you know a little more severe than a horizontal transmission model but with horizontal yeah. transmission models you have things with um you know you may be able to reproduce it nine out of ten times but that one time that you can't you can't explain it and so you just have to repeat it <laughs> But uh, with histomonas specifically, I think the, the horizontal transmission model is a more realistic way to evaluate, you know, maybe natural alternatives. So mm -hmm. that that's probably some of the, you know, the hard things to do when you're working yeah. with these models. So I know a little bit that about histomonas or blackhead, right? That's the <clears throat> common term. Um, and I know that it affects turkeys a bit more than chickens. Is that still kind of the current state of affairs or are you seeing a lot more issues in chickens? So, um, I mean, just, you know, word of mouth, hear things that some uh, breeder flocks mm. uh, may have, you know, more severe breaks than yeah. others, but that usually comes back to deworming. Oh, um, yeah or maybe a particular strain. Um, most of what our group does or, you know, works with when it comes to histomonas is with turkeys. And yeah, their immune response is quite different than, you know, chickens to histomonas. And so there has been some research, not by our group, but others um, definitely showing that. But I still don't think we truly understand the biology of histomonas and the, you know, pathogenesis and, um, to truly understand immune, like how the immune system yeah. really is differing between the two, but it is absolutely different. <laughs> is it, is the difference, does that cause the disease to be more severe in turkeys or are they slower to respond, would you say? Or is that kind of one of the things that still needs to be elucidated? Well, I think the innate response, I think that's been shown that that is delayed in turkeys. But then the uh, like the cytokine storm and things like that is leading to severe damage. And mm -hmm. that's where you're getting that excessive mortality in turkeys that's yeah. to sometimes 100%. And they just can't recover because yeah. they're either dying from severe typhlitis, depending on the strain of histomonas, or severe hepatitis. And so mm. there's no going back. Yeah. Um, we, the other issue is we don't understand how it transmits fully inside the, you know, the turkey barns. And so that's another factor that is, you know, it's confusing some of the things. Yeah. Our understanding of transmission and severity and how rapidly yeah. it transmits in a flock. So, yeah. So when, when you're developing the models, especially for a disease like this, that's got horizontal transfer, how important is the setting or recreating the ability for them to horizontally transfer? It seems like it that could be the success or failure of the overall model. Absolutely. And um, there are a couple of groups who have 
you know, been able to reproduce horizontal transmission in floor pens. Uh, however, I've had no success with that. And so we <laughs> use a battery cage type model where we place um, papers in the cages. And, you know, that's where you get nine out of 10 times you get horizontal transmission and we're able to reproduce that. And so that's the model that we use. Yeah. Um, I think with the, the floor pen aspect and litter, you know, trans horizontal transmission on litter, there's so many factors in that. And I don't know if, you know, when someone is able to reproduce that it's the diet they're using or the strain that they're using or, you know, the, the stage at which they, the histomonads were when they were administered to the birds or density, you know, there's so many factors, yeah. but um, we just haven't nailed those down to be able to, I would say any of us consistently reproduce horizontal transmission and floor pins. Mm -hmm. You may get it once. <laughs> yeah. This sounds like um, a career long project. <laughs> <laughs> So a good a good place for someone at the beginning of their career to be because <laughs> you've got plenty of work to do. <laughs> yeah, and um, that, you know, vectors come into that in the field. And so really understanding that as well. I believe um, Dr. Be Beckstead's group looked into that. Uh, Sean Chen's group at, you know, Georgia had looked into that and uh, Rudiger Hawk. So there's other folks that have tried to, you know, yeah. look into it, but um I still don't think we're fully there with the molecular techniques to truly understand, uh, you know, all yes. of this. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of our goal. Yeah. I often also feel like I'm being tripped up <laughs> by not having the correct molecular techniques. <laughs> right. The work that we do. I, I get you right there. Um, so what, what have been some other, uh, other sorts of models or projects that you've been developing or been been working on and and I know they would be different than histomonas but maybe would still have some of the same challenges I guess as far as repeatability yeah so um well uh I, I'll go to intercaucus secorum because that's what we you know we have a couple of models we've developed recently and I would say that you know maybe the downfall with those models is that if by if there is another intercaucus species that you know, just naturally comes in with, you know, the, the embryos that we use for those studies that is going to, you know, potentially impact the outcome. Oh, and so yeah. that's affecting, you know, reproducibility. So if you have an intercaucus fecalis, I mean, we've seen where, you know, our virulent sequorum strains administering those during late embryogenesis seem to benefit them because the fecalis appeared to be more virulent than the Socorum. And so I think that is a limitation with our models, but um, out of, you know, the, the five or six times we've ran that, we've only had one instance where, you know, we just had severe contamination with fecalis, but what do you yeah. do? And so, and that's realistic. So, you know, we yeah. take those studies out and try to understand how, our sequorum strains are interacting with the fecalis, you know, that's naturally coming in with the birds. And so that's definitely a, a factor. Um, and then uh, with Imeria, more specifically necrotic enteritis, you know, there's, as you know, there's multiple 
challenge models. <laughs> and so I, yeah. you know, and everyone has an opinion on which one, you know, is, is best, but it all comes back to, um, you know, we're all trying to reproduce the disease. Mm-hmm. Maybe the way that we're doing it could be um, with necrotic enteritis. It may be that, you know, some may think the challenge model that we're using could be too severe. Uh, but it, the one that we particularly used was developed in the Hargis lab. And so it's a salmonella challenge at hatch followed by Miriam Maxima, um, which depending on the strain of Maxima that you use could dictate the type of mortality that you'll see um, at the end once you have necrotic enteritis developing. Um, so Salmonella, Typhimerium, followed by Enterococcus, uh, Imeria Maxima, and then Clostridium perfringens, of course. But other folks put Clostridium perfringens in the feed or just only use, mm. you know, perfringens, or maybe they'll vaccinate with, use a Coxivac, followed by some perfringens. And so um, I think we all have the same goal. It's to try to reproduce yeah. the disease, disease so we can find alternative methods to control it, though. So, Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you there. And sometimes it's just luck of the draw or luck of the birds you get on trial. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But that's reality, right? And so oh, 100%. try to make, make the most of it and go with it and see if you can't learn something else from it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what do you think, just from a general perspective, some of the other than the, the disease models that you mentioned right now, like what are the big things of interest right now in industry? I mean, industry has to be interested in these disease models because it gives them a route to test different interventions. But um, are, they, are they looking towards these diseases as they're going to be constant? Or, you know, do they, do they think that there's other things coming on the horizon? Or is it just kind of everybody has their own <laughs> interest and we all work on something? Well, I mean, with histomonas, um, there there are no vaccines and there are no, you know, a, available approved treatment options for that. So there absolutely needs to be something that they can yeah. use to, you know, prevent or treat these flocks. Um, because, I mean, it, it, from a welfare perspective, too, it, it's it's really sad that you know, you, there's almost nothing you can do except maybe some management practices that may have worked and you think that maybe it's going to improve um, your livability uh, or reduce severity of the disease. So with that one, I think there's, that's why we're doing the research is to find, you know, some alternative. Um, with Enterococcus sequorum or any of those hatchery-associated opportunistic pathogens, goes back to formaldehyde fumigation, at least in the U.S. That's what is still traditionally primarily used to, uh, you know, fumigate those hatch cabinets during late embryogenesis. And so formaldehyde is a carcinogen, right? And so um, not only from the animal aspect, uh, but also the human perspective, um, we may be limited to how long we have formaldehyde as a tool. And so that's why we're we focus not only on the intercoccus sequorum type models, but E. coli mixed pathogen type models um, so that some of these, you know, folks who do think that they have something that could be an alternative to formaldehyde, we have a way to test that before they go into a commercial hatch hatchery, oh, yeah. you know, head to head with formaldehyde. So we'll do that in the lab before 
commercial application. And so it's like a stepping stone. And I think it's, it validates that, you know, some of the things that are being tested could be alternatives, or maybe we need like a multifaceted approach. And so one of my students, he focuses on probiotic interventions during late embryogenesis. You know, it's saying as an alternative to formaldehyde is quite bold. So that's why I say it's going to take multiple (laughs) approaches. A probiotic is not a complete replacement for formaldehyde, but it it can improve, you know, performance and overall well-being for the chicks if used appropriately. Yeah, Yeah, the, the hope is at some point something could equal a chemical or equal an antibiotic, but in in reality or actually in practice, it's not equal. I mean, we no. know the mechanism of action, mode of action for those different things, and it's not <laughs> it's not it's not just even on the same playing field, right? They're they're just different. They can they can provide a benefit, but they're just different. <laughs> exactly. And so you have to be careful when you're, you know, comparing something head to head to a chemical mm-hmm. and antibiotic, things of that nature, because you cannot expect you know, some of these things that we evaluate to even meet, you know, the same standards as a chemical or an antibiotic, but that doesn't mean that it's not beneficial in some way to the, to the bird. And so it's easy to forget that because when you're looking at data, you can, you know, you want something as effective. Well, that, that may not be realistic, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean it may not be beneficial. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm totally on board. Totally on board with that. Um, is there anything that that you've worked on that was kind of like a surprise result, like unexpected? I know sometimes when we have unexpected results, those are our big discoveries, or you know, other interesting outcomes or interesting places to follow up on. Yeah, so uh, we we ran one study uh, recently with uh, we isolated. Uh, turkey imeria from wild turkeys in the U.S. and then screen those for uh, anticoxidial sensitivity and then, you know, safety as uh, potential, you know, vaccine candidates. And so uh, we were running uh, particularly an imeria meliagromitis strain through uh, with and without a bioshuttle program. And so uh, we, we still need to repeat the study, but we did see the bioshuttle program had uh, one compared to just vaccination alone with that meliagromitis strain, um, there was increased intestinal permeability, which, you know, was interesting to me because, um, you know, performance-wise and things of that, they were they, they were quite similar. Uh, but something was, you know, is going on where, you know, you may be interrupting cycling, developing mm. immunity, not having an effect on performance, but perhaps we need to repeat the study obviously, but there was some increased intestinal permeability. And so um, I don't know what that exactly means, but we were shocked. So, (laughs) um, uh, and so we're working to kind of, you know, investigate that further. Yeah. Hey, that can be a really cool key finding. Uh, You just got to figure out what it means. (laughs) Yeah. And it may not repeat, you know, that's research, but um, that, that was one of the ones in my mind that really stood out to us. Yeah. So I know it's common, especially for the different Amiria strains, to either isolate from, you know, a production flock or uh, a different source. But how how did you isolate 
coccidia from wild turkeys? <laughs> well, uh, there was a master student. So I, I was still working on my PhD at the time, um, yeah. but definitely helping lead this project. But a master student, he did all the legwork for this. His name's Aaron Ashcraft, but he contacted state agencies, you know, um, wildlife folks, hunters. So he went yeah. to hunting websites. And man, I bet, you know, 2019 uh, and beginning of 2020, he probably sent out 50 to 100 kits. And yeah. then we just received random fecal samples from all over, you know, the, the eastern, you know, two thirds of the U.S. And yeah. um, that was our 2020 project. So uh, I, you know, when I came here, we just continued that research and uh, it's been a whirlwind. But yeah, we went from, I think, a, a hundred different isolates and then ran those through um, anticoxidial sensitivity testing because we didn't want to move forward if they were mm -hmm. resistant um, to single OSS isolation, which is extremely tedious. Um, <laughs> I mean, you've, you fail more than you went on that. And then yeah. uh, we... We isolated um, five species that were, you know, vaccine candidates that we're still evaluating. So yeah. that was a group effort. <laughs> <laughs> and that and, and Aaron did a lot with that. And so yeah. um, it was a lot of legwork to get those a lot of poop samples, too. But that's yeah. I can imagine the pure excitement of, you know, a hunter, someone who was able to collect a fecal sample from a turkey, maybe contributing to a vaccine in the future. Like that would be quite exciting if you knew yeah. that you you were the person that collected that sample. <laughs> right, and so, yeah, we, we, we kept everything tracked so we know, you know, where they came from. And so mm -hmm. um, most of the ones, you know, interestingly that we use were from Maine or Delaware, oh, but it makes sense that, you know, there's not really any turkey production up in that area. So yeah. the, the isolates that we had more, for, you know, closer in Pennsylvania and Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, I mean, a lot of those were resistant to something. And so it, mm -hmm. it didn't, it didn't pass the test. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really interesting. Um, that's really interesting data that you found some resistance <laughs> in the wild turkey populations. Yeah. And I, mainly around where commercial turkey operations are ongoing. So yeah. you know, they're exposed to, you know, as not directly, but indirectly, yeah. I guess, you know, yeah. exposed to some of those partially resistant strains at least. Yeah. Cause it, I mean, from, from litter and other application you can kind of share <laughs> between wild turkeys exactly. and <laughs> exactly. wild turkeys and the captive turkeys, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, captive and wild. That's yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, before we wrap up today, is there anything else that you want to mention about any of the topics that we talked about? Um, no, I mean, we talked about the challenge models and, you know, the headache that comes along with that, but how we use those for tools. Um, no, I mean, I, I think, you know, that was important and what I think people need to hear about, you yeah. know, what we're trying to do. So, yeah, but it's, it's really exciting. I, I love people who spend their time focusing on models because then everybody moves forward when we know more information. 
Yeah, I enjoy it, so. <laughs> it's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Your partner for improving animal performance. Berg and Schmidt. One of AB Vista's core strategies is to give customers the flexibility to do more with less, which is a common theme among many companies and producers in today's industry. As a science-driven company, AB Vista has proven results to help our customers achieve optimal performance using customized programs with our core phytase and xylanase. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. Um, so to wrap up our chat today, I want to ask you the three questions that we ask all of our guests. And the first question is, what is a favorite poultry resource? Uh, the avian immunology books that mm. come out every so often. There was a, yep. a new one recently. Uh, I'm not an immunologist. A lot of the things we do requires some knowledge of immunology. And so I refer to that often. And also, you know, my students do as well. So yeah. I love that book. I like the physical book too. The physical book, not not the online. <laughs> I need to get the physical book because yeah. yeah, it's it's different holding a book than it is oh, yeah. trying to scroll through a PDF. So oh gosh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, the second question is, what is a favorite non-poultry resource? Uh, so I, if, if we're on books, um, essentialism. I don't know if you've read that book. I haven't. Well, I'll tell you the gist of it. You should still read it, but yeah. uh, it is what it sounds like. It's um, saying no to things. You know, a lot yeah. of us are inclined to say yes because we don't want to, we never want anyone, you know, to make anyone upset or we want to fulfill everyone's request. And so yeah. um, I've referred to that book often and read it many times. It's, uh, you know, try to not get pulled in too many directions, even though they're all exciting. Um say no in a way that, you know, you feel is appropriate if you need to, or explain why you can't fulfill the request at that time, which is so hard, especially mm -hmm. in academia, you know, when you're, these problems are coming to you and you want to tackle them all, but you have to be realistic. And um, so that, that's a great book, I think, for anyone um, to read. Yeah, I I'll have to put it on my list. <laughs> it's an easy, quick read. So. <laughs> oh, good. Love that. Um, so the last question is, is, is what is your um, best advice for somebody who wants to get into the poultry industry and be successful? Oh, well, I would say, you know, figure out what you're passionate about. And so um, whether that is, you know, 
if you're going through college, you know, go talk to different professors and see what you'd like or um, internships, things like that. Figure out what you're going to be passionate about and then pursue that after your degree. If you're someone who's not going to college, I mean, see if there's a company where you can rotate between different sectors within that company. I know Simmons does that. Um, and I students love that when they come out of here and they, they get to, you know, if they get a job and they go in this rotational program, I, I don't know exactly what it's called, but I know that they go, you know, hatchery all through every part of production. And so, um, so that they place you where you're, you know, mm. going to fit best. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, you know, refer to the folks around you, especially those that have experience and just, you know, do as much as you can and figure out what you want to do. Don't let someone else sway you. Um, oh, that's great advice. <laughs> Sometimes hard, though, if you're saying yes all the time, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Ironically, um, I, I have a random unrelated question. Do you keep a Christmas tree in your office year round? <laughs> or are you just very proactive and ahead of the game this year. <laughs> yes, I keep it year round. And I typically have a small one at home year round. And I'm telling you, if you're having a bad day plugging that Christmas tree in, I don't know what it does, but it it makes a difference. And so that's just one of the little quirks that I get made fun of constantly for. But um, I love that. <laughs> it makes you happy. So, I mean... Yeah, I'm also seven feet tall. Oh, yeah, so I'm a little, yeah, it's quite tall. So I would have to get some help. And so I also don't want to burden someone to help me take it down. So we're just going to keep plugging it in when I'm, when I need, when I'm having a hard day. So yeah, you, you roll with that. You enjoy it. I'm on board with you. (laughs) You should put one up. I should. (laughs) Well, thank you again for telling us about your work and some of the cool things that you're doing. This was quite a fun talk for me to hear about what you're doing down in Arkansas. (laughs) No, I enjoyed it. And yeah, so thank you for taking the time to talk with me too. And uh, I had a blast. Yeah, you're welcome. We'll we'll chat soon. (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) 